0: So this evening we're going to be Bezhar Hashem learning uh, Parashat Shelach. It's actually a very, very important parasha. It's a sad parasha, but it's an extremely important parasha for uh, for the Jewish people, for the understanding of Torah and the development of Jewish history, and also for the upcoming uh, fast days that are going to be on the calendar, Shiva uh, Sar, Tammuz and then of course Tisha uh, BeAv. Tisha B'Av being one of the reasons behind Tisha B'Av being that it commemorates... The destruction of the Beit Hamikdash, of course, but also uh, is associated with the um, Chetam Raglim, the sin of the gold, the sin of the uh, spies, and the Jewish people's initial refusal to go into the land of Israel. Uh, and that to be able to understand what exactly the Chetam Raglim is, the sin of the spies. Allows us to appreciate some of the significance of Tisha B'av as well, because it's one of the things that is commemorated on Tisha B'av. We always think of the destruction of the Beit Hamikdash as being the key thing, and it is, of course, the essential event. But actually, the uh, the concept of Tisha B'av, the rabbis tell us, really was originated when the when the spies came back from their mission, and everybody. Was despondent and gave up on the concept of of entering Eretz Israel. So, we're we're gonna um, we're gonna look at the parasha, and I'm gonna use the screen share here so we can see the text. Parashat Shelach. Now, we know that the outcome of the sin of the meraglim, the sin of the spies, is that the Jewish people are condemned to wander in the desert for forty years. Um, interestingly. And I think it's supported by the text in many ways. Rashi and the rabbis, Rashi quoting and following the rabbis really, say that the sin or the punishment of the 40 years of wandering was really the result of two different um, sins or transgressions of the Jewish people. The first, the sin of the golden calf, and the second, the sin of the spies. And interesting, it's interesting to note that in addition to the sin of the spies being commemorated unto Shabaab, so is the sin of the golden calf, because we say that it was also, uh, it's also related. It's also the, um, it's also related in to that period of time, because the shattering of the luchot, the shattering of the tablets with the Ten Commandments, occurred on Shivasar Betamuz three weeks before Tisha B'Av. In other words, it's a prelude to Tisha B'Av, which means that whatever happened, really, if you look at everything that happened on Shivasar B'tamuz, which is coming up in just about three weeks, um, they're all precursors or preludes to what happened on Tisha B'Av. So there's a clear connection the rabbis are drawing between the sin of the golden calf and the sin of the spies, even in terms of connecting the sin of the golden calf to, because the shattering of the luchot was what Moshe Rabbeinu did when he saw the sin of the golden calf being committed. So that sin is connected to the sin of the spies by one of them being on Shivasar Sarbatamuz and one of them being on Tisha B'Av. what I'm saying is that the rabbis also say that the sin, that really this was the last straw, in other words, the last time that Hashem had uh, intended or expressed an intent to destroy the entire Jewish people was after, in the aftermath of the golden calf. Incident, and now Hashem intends to do that again. And in both cases, Moshe Rabinu prays, and the disaster is averted. But the sum total of these two sins is what leads to um, is what leads to the forty years of wandering. So that's important to understand because we think of it as a punishment only for the sin of the spies. But actually, it's an aggregate, or it's a it's cumulative. The sin of the spies is a culmination. Of, uh, of sinning by the Jewish people. It's not a singular action that they did, believing the spies, that um, therefore uh, led to a punishment of 40 years wandering in the desert. Because if you think about it, if you were to put on a scale, what is the more egregious sin? Obviously, worshiping idols is the worst sin a person can do in Judaism. So if somebody worshiped an idol, if, that, if they were able to get off the hook, so to speak, Moshe Rabbeinu got them off the hook, for, uh, for the sin of the uh, golden calf. So how is it possible that for the sin of the spies they're condemned for 40 years of wandering in the desert? It doesn't seem logical if you're looking at the severity of the transgressions. Uh, the severity of the uh, sin of the golden calf is obviously greater in terms of the theological, the religious significance of that action. It's not just that. It's a matter of... A uh, it revealing an underlying defect that has per- b- persisted. In other words, not only the the uh, sin of the golden calf, but also the resistance to the message of the meraglim, or really the resistance to the idea of going into Eretz Israel, is an expression of that same underlying problem, and that's the reason why. They were denied entry into Eretz Yisrael finally because of this. It wasn't specifically because of the sin of the golden calf, but it was because of an underlying problem that goes. I'm sorry, it wasn't specifically because of the sin of the not listening to the sp- of the of the spies, but it was because of the underlying problem. Uh, that first revealed itself in the sin of the golden calf. And that's what Rashi says. He says it was the combination of the two sins. And therefore, we can understand why, also according to the rabbis, Ben Levi were not included in the uh, decree to wander in the desert for 40 years because actually they didn't commit the sin of the golden calf. They weren't involved in the sin of the golden calf. So even if they did believe the maraglim, which it's not 100% clear because they didn't have... A, uh they didn't have a spy that represented them in the delegation, but even if they believed in it it would only be their first trespass their first violation and not their second one and that would mean that they still had they were only uh uh you know they still were only fifty percent uh in trouble they weren't a hundred percent so they wouldn't have been included in the den- uh, the denial of permission to enter the land obviously they had to wander around with everyone else but meaning they wouldn't ha- they weren't denied permission to enter the land and that's why you still have Kohanim and Leviim, um, from the previous generation that entered into Eretz Yisrael, including Pinchas and uh, and so on. So we notice that the Kohanim and the Levi'im are exempted from this uh, idea that everyone who is going to believe the Meraglim is going to die in the desert because you see that the Levi'im and the Kohanim actually uh, lived um, and continued into Eretz Yisrael. So that's something that Rashi points out, and that's something that the text, I think, also supports, especially from the Kohanim and the V'im standpoint. But we need to understand what is the conceptual connection between um, between uh, the uh, sin of the golden calf and the sin of the spies. Is there a connection between the two? And you know what is the nature of it. Uh, and just to, you know, everybody knows that there's a, a seeming contradiction between the way that the story of the uh, spies is related in Parashat Shelach and the way that it's related in um, in the Book of Dvarim. Because actually in the Book of Dvarim, it, Moshe Rabbeinu blames the people and he says that they came to him and demanded that spies be sent and he agreed. Here, it sounds like Hashem is commanding for the spies to be sent. Similarly, here, it sounds like the spies came back and said... Well, the land is nice, but we're not going to be able to go because of this and that. Whereas in the, the book of Zvarim, in the beginning of uh, Sefer Zvarim, when Moshe Rabbeinu recounts the story, he says that the spies said it was good. The land is very good, but if, if you didn't want to go, Veloavitem Vitem la you didn't want to go. So it's very interesting. You, how can you spin the story like that? I mean, here it's very clear. First of all, that it seems to come from the top, the command for uh, the command of the. Uh, of the Meraglim, the idea of sending Meraglim seems to come from the top, come from Hashem to Moshe. Uh, and and in Devarim, it sounds like uh, it sounds like the people initiated it. That's one issue. But the other issue is, how can Moshe Rabbeinu say over there that the Meraglim came back, the spies came back and said the land is good, and the people refused to go, when in reality the, the spies came back and said the land was bad or said the land maybe was good, but they wouldn't be able to go in. And the people were believing the Meraglim. It would sound from Moshe Rabbeinu's a recounting of it in the in Sefer Tvarim or in Parashat that actually the Jewish people weren't listening to the spies because the spies told them it was good. Now you could say that that's talking about only the two spies. Maybe Moshe Rabbeinu only cares about the two good spies who were telling the truth, and that's why he says you didn't want to go because you didn't want to listen to the spies. But uh, what about the other ten? Okay, you should have ignored them, maybe. Uh, but uh, there, there's a there, there's a deeper thing the concept here. There's a deeper concept here. Nobody ever denied the land was good. And I think that's important to understand. Even the Meraglim, who were against going into the land, never denied that it was good. And they say in the beginning that the land that Hashem has given us is good, but we can't go because the people are too strong and it's too intimidating. And uh, there's something strange about the land. And all of the other things that they said to so fear and to sow insecurity in the minds of the people, that was an addition, but really they admitted that the land was good. So what Moshe Rabbeinu says in the book of Dvarim, that the spies came back and they said that the land that Hashem wants to give us is good, it is true. If you don't want to go. That is true because they instead of saying, "Okay, well, if the land is good, let's go." You believed all of the conspiracy theories and all of the worrisome stories and all of the uh, doubts and the uh, and all of the uh, uh, all of the scary, uh, you know, speculation that the Mraglim uh, added to their report. They it wasn't the facts that they reported that were bad. It was kind of like reading the New York Times. It's hard to distinguish between fact and opinion, and especially about Israel. So there you go. It's a, it's a time-honored tradition. So the, uh, that journalists that reporters cannot be objective when it comes to Israel. So there you go. It goes all the way back to the Meraglim. The Meraglim uh, say a truth about the land to begin with. If you look at what they actually say in the beginning when they first came back, they said... Uh, the, the exact words were, to, the, uh, they said, That we went to the land that you sent us to and it's flowing with milk and honey and this is the fruit. But then they said, however, Ephes, Gazam, the people are too strong that live there and this, and the cities are too fortified. What does that mean? It means that, and this is an interesting thing that um, uh, that everyone asks, I mean, weren't the Meraglim basically telling the truth? The people are very strong. The cities are fortified. And then they describe where all of the different nations are located around the borders. So what did they do wrong? Did a Moshe Rabbeinu above here say, report to me on the following. I want to know what is the land like. And I want to know in verse 18, Vietama tell me about the people who live there. Are they strong or weak? Are they many or few? Okay. So, and, and tell me about the cities. Are they, uh, fortified or are they open? So how can Moshe Rabbeinu fault them, or how can they be criticized, faulted, for reporting exactly on the questions that Moshe Rabbeinu gave them? It doesn't make any sense. So what's the answer? So I, I saw a very nice uh, explanation, and really, um, and it was from Nechama Lebo, But really, it's it's really the Ramban says it. Um, and I don't remember. Maybe she quoted it in the name of the Ramban. I remember seeing it in her words. She said there's one word that they used in Hebrew that meant the difference between following the instruction of Moshe Rabbeinu and deviating from the instruction of Moshe Rabbeinu. And that was the word right here, Ephes. Ephes here doesn't mean zero like it normally does in Hebrew. Ephes here means however. However, the people are very strong. What does however mean? However is a statement of judgment. See, if we're supposed to just be reporting the facts, then we shouldn't have a word like Ephes, however. However means I'm opining about the fact. I'm saying the land is flowing with milk and honey. If they just went on and said the land is flowing with milk and honey, the people are strong, they live in fortified cities, then that wouldn't mean anything. They never said let's not go. They never said those words here in the initial report, did they? No. They just described, but there was one word in there. Ephes, however. However means I'm making a judgment. right? It's a good place, but... The people are very strong. What do you mean, but? Just say it's a good place and the people are very strong. I'm answering all the questions on the list. But, however, means I'm judging the feasibility of entering the land. It's implicit. It's implied that I'm making a judgment, even though it's not directly stated, but the maraglim are making a judgment about whether it makes sense to go into the land of Israel or not. And that was not their job. They are not paid to think, as they used to say, right? They are supposed to be giving us an objective account of the uh, of the situation according to the what Moshe Rabbeinu laid out as the questions they were supposed to answer. Ephes, that word is a judgment call, is an expression of subjective sentiment, and that's where they overstepped their bounds. That's when they deviated from their mission by giving an opinion about what should be done instead of just reporting the facts. We know that nowadays it's very common in journalism that a spin is placed on things, and it's a word here and a word there, and it's a choice of phrase or a choice of nuance the slightest nuance in the way that something's presented in a report that would otherwise be objective in the news, we know, is intended to make us think of it in a particular way. I, I noticed that one of the things journalists love to use is the word denied. The person denied this allegation. Denied always already sounds like the person is guilty, but they're denying it. It's already making a I always thought that at least. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's not meant that way. But to my ears and to my mind, whenever I hear in the news, so-and-so, such-and-such is alleged, and this person denies the allegation. That sounds like they're on the defensive, like, you know, really they're guilty, but they're denying it, Um, as opposed to so-and-so says that it's not true, or so-and-so claims the opposite or whatever, the word deny puts the person who's being accused on the defensive. In my opinion, I think that that's, that, that, that's the case. And you see this in so many ways, I don't have to tell you, in written media, in uh, radio media, in uh, television media, the slightest use of one, one placement of a word or choice of a word or phrase can even the slightest nuance can basically convey a judgment of the case beyond what really the journalist is supposed to be doing. So that's exactly what happened here. And so the uh, Maraglim go, and they with one word, one word, they didn't come out and say, "Let's not go." Look, you could look at the text; they didn't never said that. Okay, it was only after Kalev said, "No, we can take the land," then the Maraglim said, "No, we can't do it." And then it says. Then they spread negative reports about the land, saying it consumes its inhabitants, and the people there are giant, and that we saw giants there and all that. Everything that they said afterwards was only in response. In other words, after their attempt to slant the report was unsuccessful because Kalev called them out on it then they went and said directly that their recommendation was not to go into the land, and then they went around, and the Ramban, I believe, explains that they went around privately, not publicly, they went around spreading negative rumors about the land as well in order to undermine any remaining positive sentiment that might have been there or positive inclination towards going to the land that might have been there. They did a smear campaign against Eretz Yisrael. You could say, V'yotzi'u diba L'hotzi'u diba" means to uh, spread false rumor. So um, so they spread false rumors or exaggerated rumors about the land throughout the people in order to bias them against going to Eretz Israel. This was because they didn't have Twitter and they didn't have Instagram or any of the other ways that they could have spread their message. So they had to use the good old-fashioned gossiping uh, in order to accomplish their goal. But the point is that this ended up being a disaster, and it was a disaster that happened for a particular reason. Now, you might say, what a surprise. The maraglim came back, we're expecting a good report, inspirational message, and instead everything goes down the tubes. What happened here? Are you surprised? Well, we're not surprised because we already know the story. But would the average reader be surprised is the question. Was Moshe Rabbeinu surprised is the question. I would argue that Moshe Rabbeinu was not surprised. And how do we know that? Because it says, Moshe Rabbeinu, one of the people who was chosen to be a part of the delegation was Yoshua. And it says, shemot Now why is it telling us about Moshe renaming Yeshua in this context? Why do we need to know about the name of Yehoshua? The answer is, alav, He changed his name from Hosea to Yehoshua, which just pretty much means the same thing. Hosea means saving, and Yehoshua means may God save. Alav ya meraglim. Then Moshe Rabbeinu prayed for Yehoshua, may he save you, Yehoshua, from the influence, from the scheme Of the Meraglim. That means that Moshe Rabbeinu from the very beginning anticipated there was a problem here. Otherwise, what is it? Why would he be praying for Yoshua to be saved from the scheme of the Meraglim? What scheme? he must have known that there was some kind of a scheme that potentially or you know, was already brewing or potentially could be brewing. And that's why he, he prayed for Yoshua not to be pulled into it. Now it happens to be that Yoshua had the strength. And as I've mentioned in the past, Kalev is really the one who is the unique, is the one that stands out in the parasha because he's the one that didn't really have any particular reason to ally himself with Moshe Rabbeinu. Yoshua Yo, is the student of Moshe Rabbeinu? He's a he's a company man. He's not going to break with the uh, with the with Moshe Rabbeinu's position. It's very unlikely that he would. But Kalev is the one who stands on his own, and that's why the rabbis say. And I've mentioned it before, but just to point it out again because I think it's so important. It mentions that when they come, it says Vayalu Banegev. They went up into the Negev. Vayavod Chevron. Vayavod is in the singular. Vayalu is in the plural. Vayavod Chevron, and the rabbis say Vayalu. Uh, uh, but, negev, why does it say Vayavot in the singular? Because only one person came to Chevron. Who was it? Kalev Levadoa Lachshem, she says. Kalev alone went there. Venishtatech al Kivrei Avot. And he prayed at the tomb of the Avot. That was in Chevron, where the Maratha Machpelah, where Avram Yitzchak and Yaakov are buried. So that he wouldn't be um, ensnared in the plot. Of his colleagues, and that's why Kalev eventually inherits Hebron. The proof that that was actually just Kalev who went to Hebron. is because later on it says he's going to receive the land. Uh, later on, in, in the book of Bereishit, it says he's going to get the land that he walked uh, in, and we know that he gets that he actually gets uh, Hebron. becomes the territory of Kalev. So he went there because he wanted to draw inspiration and strength from the Avot by going to their going to their uh, tomb. What does that show you? It shows that Yeshua has his own Rebbe, his own teacher to give him strength. Kalev goes back to Avram Yitzchak and Yaakov. They were people who were brave. They were people who were able to stand on, their, on the strength of their own convictions against the entire world and to go to Eretz Yisrael in the case of Avram Avino, leave everything behind to pursue a mission that seemed crazy in the eyes of the world. Um, and they were able to do that with no social support at all and so Kalev basically went for the same reason to draw inspiration and be able to stand up against the tide of everybody else saying what's right or what's wrong or what should be done or what shouldn't be done he was going to stand up for what was right and that was what made Kalev a unique personality but and then and you see also that he is the one who silences everyone else and then says no we can go to the land why was he able to silence them because they didn't think he was going to be against them They they, th- they thought that he was going to be with them um, but he actually supported Moshe Rabbeinu, which came as a surprise to all the Maraglim. So you see, from here, from the beginning, Moshe, from if he's praying for Yoshua not to be seduced by the Maraglim, that means that he knows that there's a concern here, and that might help us to reconcile what we see in the book of Dvarim that Moshe Rabbeinu blames the sin of the that the initiation of the whole concept of sending Maraglim on the people, whereas here it sounds like it came from Hashem. Rashi uh, again reconciles that by saying that Hashem gave Moshe the option and since the people wanted it, Moshe pursued it. Um, the other possibility would be that uh, that the people initiated it and then Hashem said, okay, if the people are going to want this, then we're going to have to do it according to a certain way and Hashem gave a command to try to minimize the damage that would occur from uh, from this whole mission. But the, the point is that there was an underlying insecurity again, an underlying fear of the unknown that was gripping the people, that why they wanted the Mraglim to go. And in the case of, uh, the, and, in the, and here, what is, their, what is their response? Once they give up hope for, of going to Israel, their default response is, let's go back to Egypt, which means what? All along, that's what they really wanted. All along, where do you get that from? Where do you get that kind kind of a reaction as your reaction to the frustration of fear of going into Eretz Israel? That means that all along, deep down in their minds, they were saying, maybe there will be some excuse, there will be some reason, there will be some opening for us to go back to conventional existence that we're used to in Egypt and we won't have to deal with this anymore and this was their excuse that look, it's a death wish, it's a suicide mission, let's go back to Egypt ben let's appoint a leader and go back to Egypt and the rabbis say, what is Nitnarosh? let's pick an idol and go back to Egypt, that's what the rabbis say it doesn't mean a human leader, it means let's go back to our idolatry, let's go back to our primitive way of life and go back to Egypt let's forget about this, it's a failed mission that's what they thought, but what does it show you? it shows shows you that all along they were looking for an excuse to turn back. They were looking for an excuse to justify what was really their cowardly uh, fear of going into Eretz Israel. And if we think about it that way, we can go back, we can notice two things. We can notice, first of all, something that Moshe Rabbeinu does here that is um, unusual. Moshe Rabbeinu asks them to bring some of the fruit of the land back. And they do, they bring very long, very large clusters of grapes from the, and pomegranates and figs to show everybody. And Moshe Rabbeinu asked them to please bring some of the fruit of the land to show everybody. Now that's a very strange thing. I mean, he knows that they're afraid, he knows that they are worried, they want spies to go and reassure them. And what, is, what good is it going to do to show them some fruit? You know, what's the benefit of showing them fruit? So it seems like, uh, and, and, and if we go back for a second, we go back to what I mentioned in the beginning of the shiur, that the rabbis connect the sin of the spies to the sin of the golden calf. What was the sin of the golden calf? What did the sin of the golden calf and the sin of the spies have in common just on the surface? They have in common the, 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 the phenomenon of fear. In both cases, there's fear of the unknown. In the case of the in the case of the golden calf, the fear of the unknown Moshe Rabbeinu is gone. He was their source of a feeling of security and confidence, and he's gone. And they don't have sufficient conviction in God's presence being with them. And so therefore, they need to create some representation, some intermediary. They didn't really believe that the golden calf was God. That's not possible. But the idea was that they thought it represented his presence, an intermediary maybe between them and God. Or somehow a reassurance that God was with them, that they could see and feel and touch and dance around that took the stress and took the fear off of them, allowed them to feel comfortable and and, and allowed them to feel uh, some kind of a uh, support again. That came from something sensory, that came from something very primitive really. And if you look here in the case of entering the land of Israel, again we're faced with entering in to a situation where we have no sensory input, no sensory data to support the decision we're making. It's based on a concept, it's based on an idea, it's abstract, it's very difficult. Being able to trust that God is with you when you don't see and you don't have evidence and Moshe Rabbeinu is not there, how do you have that conviction? It led to the Ekel Here you have a situation where you have to trust the idea of the promised land that God has made a guarantee to the Jewish people that they will take it. And they can trust him and trust that it's a good land and go in and they're not able to do it. They want to be able to see it. They want to be able to have some kind of a uh, concrete idea of what's really going on. And that's why... See, the Ramban says that the reason why the Meraglim were sent was that they would have been sent anyway because Meraglim you have to send in order to determine a proper course of action, proper course of entry into the land and a proper line of attack to conquer the land. But the thing is that even though that's true, you don't send a delegation of 12 people to do that. You send a couple of spies to do a reconnaissance mission. You don't send 12 politicians to go and report on whether the land is good or bad. But the point is that the people wanted reassurance that somebody saw it with their own eyes. Somebody evaluated things with their own eyes, and they wanted to see Moshe Rabbeinu even. And it's interesting because I, my, one of my teachers pointed this out as something where Moshe Rabbeinu erred. Moshe Rabbeinu um, can basically—I don't know if the right word is erred—but he 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 capitulated to the to the baser instincts of the people by bringing telling the spies to bring fruit of the land so they could see it because when you can see something and you can imagine it and and you know what it looks like so now you can use those baser instincts to counteract the uh, other instincts the fears it's like if you're moving to a new place, as I am right now. Let's say, for example, or, and I and this is something. Look, my uh, with our kids. So when we're trying to show them what an unknown place Israel is going to look like, so we show them pictures. Of course, we show them videos. We show them picture of the neighborhood they're going to be in. We show them picture of the schools, pictures of the uh, apartment. Because th- if they have a concrete sense, then their fear of the unknown, let's say, or their attachment to what's familiar, can be counterbalanced by seeing and desiring something that they can imagine as being good um, in the future. But that, again, is not a concept. It's not an ideal or an idea or a theory. It's not something that is engaging the higher elements that a person says, I have conviction in an idea, even though I can't physically see it. It's it's basically making a concession to the lower element. It's saying to play one emotion against the other. And to play an emotion, a reassuring emotion, to play that against an emotion of fear. Instead of saying, you know what, you need to rise up above the emotions and have conviction in a principle, in an ideal. Who did that? Abraham Avinu did that. Abraham Avinu was able to go, you're going to go to the land that I will show you. That means it's a land that you haven't seen and you don't even know what it is or where it is. You're going to go and I'm going to show you later. What does that mean? That means that Avraham Avinu has such conviction in God's plan. he has He's so dedicated to the will of God that the details are insignificant. In fact, the rabbis say that that increased the reward of Avraham Avinu. That he was leaving behind. That when it came to leaving behind, it mentions, Lech lecha me'artzecha, umi umi Leave behind your land and your, uh, your birthplace and the house of your father. In other words, everything that's familiar to you your national identity, your upbringing, the place that you grew up, your family, the most intimate and comforting place that a person has is the home of their family, that being home with their family. That leave behind all of that, that you can taste it, you can smell it, you can see it. Leave it behind and go for an idea that you can't see. You don't even know the name of the place. I'm going to show it to you later. eka, but it's going to be the place that God chose, so it doesn't matter where it is. And we see a similar idea when it talks about the relocating of the camp in Parashat Balotecha that we missed unfortunately. A shi'ura, that because we had um, Memorial Day, but the um, but the uh, the concept of um, of uh, in Parashat Balotecha is that. When it talks about the moving of the camp from place to place, that they would spend sometimes one night and one day in a place. It could be one; they could be there there for one night, and the next morning they moved. Sometimes they were there for a while. Sometimes they were there for months. Sometimes they were there for days. Sometimes they were there for a year. It didn't matter. Whatever Hashem commanded them, al pi Hashem Ya al pi According to God's word, they camped. According to God's word, they would. Di- they would, uh, you know, uh, they would uh, leave, they would depart. So everything I did was al piyashem. It was based on God's will. And the Sephorno has a beautiful commentary there where he says that even though sometimes they would be in a place that was very nice. And they would have to leave it. But they wouldn't be attached to it. Or they would be in a place that was very bad. But they would stay there because Hashem willed. In other words, they were able to transcend their attachment to the physical. And attach themselves to God's will. It was God's will that determined where to camp and where to move. And that was a high achievement. That was a very high level that that they achieved. Through the training of the camping and the moving. The camping and the moving. The camping and the moving. That all that mattered was the place that God determined. That was what it was to train. That's an abstract concept. But when you have that abstract concept, that's real bitachon in Hashem. Real trust in God is, I don't know exactly what it's going to look like. And this is something I spoke about at length last year when we learned shara bitachon. We were having shirim in the morning during the height of COVID when everybody was in quarantine and it was on Zoom. And in the mornings we learned shara bitachon of of the chovot Levavot and over there, one of the things we spoke about was that the person who really trusts in God doesn't have any specific, concrete idea of what, what, how exactly God is going to operate in their life, how God is going to provide them with their needs, how God is going... But they know that that if they're not attached, if they themselves are not attached to seeing up speci- to a specific way that God has to deliver to them, if they're open to whatever the manifold ways... Vehicles that God can use to provide parnasad, then they are going to find it because they're not attached to a particular. They're not attached to the concrete. But if they need to see it in a certain way, a certain amount, a certain uh, a certain style, a, a certain comfort level, whatever it is, if it ha- if it's based on their own terms, that's not really bitachon and Hashem. That's dictating to Hashem the way that you want to see it, and that is the problem that the Jewish people faced. Being able to rise above, being able to achieve the greatness that Abraham Avinu achieved, which was to rise above any particular, anything concrete, and to say there's only one reality for me, the will of God. And there's only one reality, there's only one source of my security and my confidence, and that is the presence of God and God's providence. And no matter what I see. And no matter what I encounter, and even though I, it might go exactly the opposite way that what I thought it was going to go, or it might not go at least at the very least not go the way that I thought it was going to go, it doesn't matter that there's a way that God is presenting in every situation a path forward for a person they they're only limited by their own myopic vision, so the Jewish people here wanted to see, they wanted to hear the details, the concrete that was the problem they didn't trust in god 's plan, and i 'm not talking about a uh, person who just says, uh, I trust in God, like the story about the guy who's drowning and, you know, the, the people come and try to save him three times and then he drowns because he didn't want to take the helicopter and he didn't want to take the boat and he didn't want to take the lifeguard, he, you know, because he was trusting in Hashem to save him. No, I'm not talking about that because a real person who has bitachon would have considered any one of those means a vehicle God was using to save him. What would not be a person trusting in God would be I only would be saved by a helicopter, I only could be saved by a lifeguard. I only could be saved by a boat. That would be dictating to God the terms on which he wanted to be saved. But the idea of uh, the, the idea that there is a way, there's a path to salvation for a person, um, even though we can't dictate what it's going to be, and we might not be able to envision it in our own imagination, that uh, is certainly, uh, that's real bitachon. Real bitachon, real trust, real emunah, faith in God, doesn't mean being a fool. First of all, it doesn't mean not using your intelligence. It doesn't mean not working. It doesn't mean not planning. It doesn't mean not trying to evaluate the situation and look for what the options are. Those things are all, uh, of course, true. What to- are necessary, and that's what God expects of you. But trusting God and having faith in God means knowing that my particular plan might not be the one. There's a plan. There's a way. But mine might not be the one. So I'm not attached to my specific dream of how it's going to be. I'm attached to the idea of God's plan. And so if the people had really been attached to the idea of God's plan, they wouldn't have needed the Meraglim. And Moshe Rabbeinu realized that the fact that they needed Meraglim, even though Hashem ratified that request or accepted that request and commanded the Meraglim to be sent, Moshe Rabbeinu realized that that showed that the Jewish people were weak in their resolve to follow the will of God because they wouldn't have demanded Meraglim to go verify for them something with sense perception because Avram Avinu didn't require that. He trusted in God's wisdom. And God's wisdom, when you have a prophet there telling you God's will and you understand what your purpose is, you don't need uh, sensory reassurance. You know with your mind what is true and what is good. Now, again, that doesn't mean that you wouldn't have to make plans. It doesn't mean that you wouldn't have to send spies for practical reasons. But for emotional reassurance, a person who really believes in God doesn't need emotional reassurance. They're able to operate in the practical world, and trust in God without being reassured emotionally by anything else. That's the key to real trust in God. So the Jewish people, when they made the Egel Azahav, it was purely to gratify a need for emotional reassurance that God was with them. It had no practical function at all, and that's why it was a terrible sin. And with the Meraglim also, they did basically say the land is good, which was all the people wanted to know. But in reality, what the Jewish people were looking for was a way to derail the whole mission and go back to the conventional, familiar place from which they had come. Because the idea of the unknown was too overwhelming for them. They wanted to go back to something that they had seen with their own eyes, that they felt comfortable with, that they felt a sense of reassurance and predictability in. That is where the person who trusts God differs from the ordinary person because they don't expect their emotions always to get that reassurance from something in the physical world. They trust in their ideas and their values and they know if I stick to these ideals and values and I plan based on them, sometimes the outcome is not going to be exactly what I expected but if I stay consistently following these values and these principles, I'll succeed because that's God's will in the big picture as long as I don't dictate what the concrete specifics of every moment have to look like. I trust in God's overarching plan That is really what it means to have bitachon and trust in God. That's true in our lives as well. Another example of that is Yosef HaTzadik. Famous story. Yosef is in jail. He's in prison. And he turns to the Sarash HaMashkim, the wine steward. And he says to him, after he interprets the dream and the wine steward hears that he's going to be able, he's going to be spared and returned to his original job. Yosef says, oh, by the way, please remember me. Because... I was kidnapped from the land of the Hebrews and I've done nothing to be in jail. I'm an innocent man. I was undeservedly thrown into jail. Please mention me to Paro and get me out of here. And the rabbis say, because of that lack of trust in God, Yosef had another two years in jail. And so everybody asks, what do you mean? Don't you have to advocate for yourself? When you want to get a job, don't you have to look for connections When you want to make a business deal, don't you have to befriend the person, take them out to lunch, I don't know, do whatever is necessary to make it happen. You have to hustle a little bit to make things happen. If you don't do that, you're not doing your due diligence. So what's wrong with what Yosef does? The answer is, and I heard this from my own teacher, the answer is that Yosef, if he were just operating practically, it's true you have to do what's practically necessary in order... To achieve your goals. And he wanted the, to achieve his goal of being recognized for his talents so he could rise to some kind of a leadership position. And so he was very, he was doting over those VIP prisoners because he thought maybe the opportunity would present itself. And it did. And he did demonstrate his great acuity and his brilliance and his prophetic capacity and all of that. But what did he do wrong? He then made himself into a pathetic case of. Uh, you know basically a pity case because he uh, he he presented his his story as a uh i you know i i'm a lowly uh victim i'm a victim and, and and what has happened to me i don't deserve it and he basically complained to the wine steward for his sympathy he wanted sympathy from the wine steward as soon as he shifted into seeking sympathy he lowered his own esteem In the eyes of the wine steward. And this is why the rabbis say that because of that, the wine steward, even when he talks to the paro about Yosef, he speaks of him in a denigrating way, in a negative way. Because once you start telling a sob story and making yourself a charity case, the people don't look at you the same way anymore. And that's exactly what happened with Yosef if he had been doing purely what was practically necessary to execute his mission, then there's no lack of bitachon. There is no lack of trust in God there. That is trusting in God. Trusting that God created a world in which if people act the right way and do intelligent things, they succeed. That is trusting in God. What's not trusting in God is thinking that the emotional reassurance should come from the sympathy of other people. If I can get their sympathy, if they feel bad for me, if they encourage me with their words, then I'll feel better about myself and more secure. And that was what Yosef did when he started t- telling his sob story to the sarah Mashkim, and he actually lowered himself in the process of doing that. If he had simply interpreted the Sarah Mashkim's dream in the correct way, he would, then the wine steward would have been so impressed that he would have told Paro oh, probably immediately after he was reinstated in his job and he wouldn't have had to wait the two years to recall Yosef. Yosef sort of caused himself, he shot himself in the foot, by um, by giving in to his own insecurities and seeking the sympathy and compassion of a human being instead of recognizing that within God's system the right way of achieving his goal was not seeking the sympathy of any human being but simply doing what he did best was which was offering the wise interpretations that he did and this is the this is really I think the lesson of the uh, of chetam raglim. That real conviction and trust in God means trusting in something that you don't know the particulars. You know the generality, you know the abstract idea. You know that God is the master of the universe and following his wisdom in whatever form that takes uh is always going to be the best path. And sometimes the outcome will contravene what you think uh should be. And sometimes his means of providing you or uh or or you know providing with you with what you need might be contrary to what you expect. But if you're open-minded and your only attachment is to the will and the purpose for which God created you, then those details will not matter very much and you will be able to succeed uh, with your bitachon, with your trust in God. And that was where the Jewish people failed. They tried to take this opportunity to revert back to a more infantile state where they could be dependent on the beneficence of the Egyptians Instead of standing up on their own two feet and trusting in God and his wisdom as their guide, that was their failure, just like with Egel that instead of standing up on their own two feet and trusting in a God that they couldn't see because they knew with their mind that God was one and he was with them. They capitulated to their baser desires to have an idol. And again there, Aaron also, Aaron thought, if I throw them a bone and I make them this egel, at least they won't actually worship an idol. They'll think of it as a representative of God's presence and hopefully everything will be resolved. I'll just meet them halfway. That was a mistake. Moshe Rabbeinu also said, I'll meet them halfway. I'll send Meraglim and I'll tell them to bring some fruit back. It didn't work because basically by catering to that lower emotion, um, it just reinforced that emotion, it made that emotion more desperate and gave that emotion more control and uh, led the Jewish people down an even worse path. And it, what came, became clear was that this generation, because of their experiences and because of all they'd been through, was not going to be the generation that would be able to rise up to the level of transcendence and Kiddushah that was necessary to enter the land of Israel as independent, free people who trusted fully. In the Bore olam, in the Creator alone, and that was why these sins—the sin of the golden calf, followed by the sin of the meraglim—which really come from that same place of insecurity, um, and that same uh, sort of uh, immature part of the uh, of the human personality. That was what caused both of, you know, those two sins together was what caused the Jewish people to have to delay their entry into the land of Israel another 40 years for a new generation that was reared completely with trust of God and completely with an awareness of God to enter into the land of Israel, not a generation that had first experienced dependence on mankind and therefore was addicted to some dependence on the concrete and the physical. So for all of us, the message, of course, is if we're going to achieve the mission of being a holy nation, we have to rise above the particulars. We have to rise above the need for a reassuring, concrete situation and recognize that reassurance and confidence come from trust in God and that whatever life might bring, whatever challenges, even whatever blessings don't overwhelm us because we're committed to one thing which is fulfilling God's will and we know That God's plan ultimately is what wins out and what determines our future and our destiny. And to the extent that we're aligned with that will, we're going to succeed and achieve great heights. And to the extent that we're not, we might get a momentary feeling of reassurance. We might get comfort from things that are familiar, but we will not be able to break out of the addiction to the familiar and rise to uh, greater heights. And I'll give one last example. Avraham Avinu, of course, when he's willing to uh, do the Akedah? He's willing to sacrifice his own son. So, at the end of the uh, Akedah, we see that when Hashem tells him, when the angel tells him not to kill Yitzchak, it says that Abraham looked over and he saw that there was an ox there, that was a, uh, there was a, um, a, a ram rather uh, that was stuck in the thicket by its horns, and he takes the ram and he sacrifices it to God, and we commemorate that ram by using a ram's horn for shofar. On Rosh Hashanah, and one of my one of my colleagues in yeshiva wrote an article about this once, and he said, "What's the reason?" for this uh, emphasis on the ram. It's weird. I mean, the real test of Abraham Avinu was his willingness to sacrifice his son. Why mention the ram and emphasize the ram that he went and took a ram and sacrificed it and that therefore we remember the ram. That's weird. Why do we do that? Why is that the essential, why is the emphasis placed placed on that detail? It seems like a postscript to the story. And the answer that my colleague, my friend gave, which I thought was a very insightful answer, and I think it's a true answer, is that, at that moment when Avraham Avinu heard, see Avraham Avinu showed tremendous self-sacrifice and trust in God. Willingness to sacrifice his own son showed that he didn't have any expectations of what God's plan would look like. No particular thing, even though he had promised him that he would have a son. And he waited until he was 100 to have this son. And the miracle happened to bring Yitzchak into the world. He still didn't consider that a guarantee that God would keep that son alive. And he was willing to sacrifice him and he trusted in God's will that that was the thing to do. That's an incredible thing that he was willing to make that sacrifice. But you would have thought that at the moment that the malach, that the angel told him you don't have to sacrifice Yitzchak his response would have been oh thank God I don't have to sacrifice him hug his son, kiss his son take his son home, have some ice cream You know, whatever. Celebrate that he gets to keep his son. What does he do? He sacrifices a ram instead. What does it show you? Even in the moment that he was given back what he wanted, so to speak, that his son was spared, his focus was only on one thing, serving God. Okay, so I'm not sacrificing my son. I need to sacrifice a ram. In other words, the mode of his thinking was always, what is God's will and what do I need to do to fulfill God's will, and to remain a servant of God. It never was attachment to the particulars. It never was an attachment to his own emotional satisfaction or dissatisfaction. He rose above that. I'm not saying we're all able to do that. Most of us are not. The Rambam says the Avot were on such a high level that many, that even other prophets and even Chachamim, great scholars, did not achieve that level that the Avot reached of total Self abnegation, total self transcendence. They were beyond their own personal needs and totally devoted to God. That's almost impossible for us to imagine, but it's an ideal for us to aspire to in our own lives, not to get caught up in the good or the bad, in the joy or the sorrow or the challenge or the frustration or the success or the achievement. All of these things become ends in themselves and they cloud our sense, our perspective on the big picture. The really, the big picture should always be before our eyes, that our ultimate goal is service of Hashem, and our ultimate reassurance, and sense of trust and confidence, is only in Hashem, and in nothing else. And that is is to learn the uh, story, that's really the message, I think, of the whole story of the Miraglim. that it's so important for us to, to internalize, and that's why Kalev is emphasized so much, because he was the one, without any social... Network and without any support was able to rise up and stand up for what was right and what was true, just like the Avot that did that he went to visit their grave, and uh, and just like we should do as well in our own lives to always stand for what is true and not depend on emotional reassurance on the reassurance and comfort of the familiar to back ourselves up. We should be able to stand up on our own two feet and do what's right no matter what, and speak what's true no matter what. And I think that is the lesson of the Chetam Raglim for us to internalize. And once we've internalized that, we'll be ready for our ultimate redemption. So Bezvat Hashem, this should be the last Tisha B'Av coming up. We should internalize the lesson and all of us should see the final redemption soon. Bezvat Hashem. I'll see everybody, I hope, next week for the continuation with Parashat Korach. Have a wonderful evening.